And if you are sitting in your seat, do not sit in the aisle or on the steps. If you do, the fire marshal will ask you to leave. So please sit in a legitimate seat. And if you are sitting in a legitimate seat and there is an empty one near you, please raise your hand. Okay. There are two empty seats. Welcome. I'm Elisa Solomon. I'm the Executive Director of the Center for Lesbian and Gay Studies, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the 10th Annual David R. Kessler Lecture in Lesbian and Gay Studies, and it's also the crowning event of CLAGS's 10th anniversary year. Uh, it's really thrilling that so many people are here. Um, I regret that there are more people who weren't allowed to come in and, and that we didn't get cooperation in trying to make an overflow space. Um, I, I, guess it's, I, I guess we can at least be glad that this many people are excited about this event and eager to hear Judith Butler. Um, and uh, I'm happy that all of you have made it inside and um, appreciate your cooperation. It's especially heartening for us to come together toward the end of such a difficult semester and to have the opportunity to acknowledge all the good things we have to celebrate. So it's especially, uh, it's especially heartening in these times to, to have this event. This lecture, made possible by the generosity of David R. Kessler, is a highlight of the CLAG's year, as it honors a scholar who has made a lifetime contribution to the field of lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual, queer studies. Past honorees, several of whom are with us tonight, have included Joan Nessel, Edmund White, Barbara Smith, Monique Vatique, Esther Newton, Samuel Delaney, Eve Sedgwick, John D'Amelio, and Cherie Moraga. Tonight, we are absolutely thrilled to be honoring Judith Butler. It's especially fitting that Judith Butler is here for the occasion of CLAGS's 10th anniversary, since she has been one of, the, one of the most incendiary forces in the explosion of queer studies over this past decade. Indeed, I think it's also been about 10 years since the publication of Gender Trouble, a book probably all uh, 400 or I think 423 now people in this room um, have not only read but uh, cited more than once. I'd like nothing better than to go on and on about the importance of Butler's work to the field and, and to my own work, uh, but that's not my job tonight. We have two more highly qualified people, David Eng and Biddy Martin, to introduce Butler in a moment. My job is to explain a few logistics, um, I guess that's obvious by now, and also to express some heartfelt thank yous. First, thanks to all of you for coming and for supporting CLAGS. As you know, we are a membership organization and we rely on your support for the many conferences, colloquia, and other events we produce. We're grateful to every single member, to donors, large and small, and to the forward-thinking foundations that truly make our work possible. In the interest of time, we have decided to spare you the pitch uh, tonight, 
trusting that you will take a good look at and respond to the membership form in your program. And please sign our mailing list if you haven't done so already. There's material about upcoming events outside, and if you want to keep fully up to date, please uh, check in regularly with our website, www.clags.org, um, where we are often adding information about programs long after we have met various printers' deadlines. Since CLEGS's founding until today, all its programs have been produced by the labor of our own dedicated volunteer board of directors, volunteer committees, and by our small but magical staff. Time doesn't permit me to name all of our board members, so please do read their names in your programs. Um, and I would like to ask them to all stand up for a moment, and I'd like to ask you to join me in thanking them all for their energy, ideas, and nitty-gritty work. For those of you, is that better? Yes, is this mic happening? Okay. Um, for those of you who are attending our benefit birthday bash after the lecture, and more about that in a moment, uh, you will be able to identify board members first by the uh, lavender roses um, in their lapels, um, and also because the board, generous as ever, has, is not only supplying the wine for the party, but also will be serving it. So please, uh, please chat us up while we fill your glass. We're also honored to have with us tonight the first two executive directors of CLAGS. Please welcome the founding director, Marty Duberman, and... <laughs> and his first successor in from Texas for the occasion, Jill Dolan. I'd also like to express a welcome and great thanks to our team of ASL interpreters tonight. They are Edwin Ithier and Michael Mealy. Thank you. Finally, there aren't enough superlatives in Roger to describe the staff of CLAGS, hardworking graduate students who keep CLAGS not only functioning, but thriving on a day-to-day -day basis. And you couldn't ask for a nicer group of kind, decent, and generous people. They are Shanti Avergan, Preston Batista, Hila Dayan, Sarah Ganter, and Jordan Schilkraut. They should be constantly showered with gratitude and affection, and now is a good time. We could actually be here all night acknowledging all the luminaries, scholars, activists, artists, community leaders, political organizers, and folks who have contributed so much to queer studies and to the struggle for LGBTQ liberation and social, social justice. Uh, I could, you know, practically name everyone in, in this audience, but why don't we at least simply acknowledge the history and the force gathered in this room right now. Uh, speaking of this room, I'd like to say how happy all of us at CLAGS are to be here at the City University of New York, for we believe that LGBTQ studies belongs in a public university, and that the diverse population of older returning students, working class and immigrant students, students of color, and all those choosing to learn and work in the vibrant urban mix of this public institution deserve the same access to learning from and adding to new knowledges as do students in more expensive institutions. 
lots more to tell you about. Our colloquium series, our book series, our pedagogy workshop, our seminars in the city, our third annual queer CUNY conference, and other programs. I'm going to forego the details so we can move to the exciting program that brings us together tonight. Uh, just a couple of quick notes about the party following the lecture. First, it wouldn't be happening at all without our generous host committee, too numerous to name, but listed in your program and deserving our unbounded thanks. Please do take note of them and do express your thanks to them. The party, a benefit for our 10th birthday, will begin immediately after the lecture. If you have already purchased a ticket, or if you would like to purchase one at the door, and we invite you to do so, just take the elevator up to the eighth floor immediately, and I stress immediately, uh, after the lecture. On the eighth floor, there will be some place to hang your coat, um, and then you can just go right in to enjoy our light dining and dancing to the Skip Martin Big Band. And if you're a little rusty on your um, swing dance steps, there will be some dancers up there to show you some moves. Um, thanks to all of you who are supporting CLAGS through this benefit. And um, I hope you'll have a good time at the party and that you'll put me on your dance card. Uh, but before then, the main event. Uh, Biddy Martin and David Ang uh, will offer their introductory testimonials of Judith Butler before her lecture, um, so let me introduce them. Uh, David Ang, CLAG's board member extraordinaire, is an assistant professor of English at Rutgers University, the author of Racial Castration, Managing Masculinity in Asian America, and also the co-editor of the forthcoming collection, Loss, the Politics of Mourning, and a number of other accomplishments that you can read about in your program. Uh, Biddy Martin is the provost of Cornell University and a professor of German and women's studies and the author of numerous books and articles including Femininity Played Straight, The Significant of Being a Lesbian, and Woman in Modernity, The Lifestyles of Lou Andreas Salome, among many other achievements. Um, please join me in welcoming them and uh, enjoy the evening and thank you again for your patience. Thanks, Elisa. The board um, is providing the alcohol and we're serving it, but we're also drinking it. So I suggest that you get up there really fast. <laughs> I feel very blessed to be here this evening with you all to honor Judith Butler and to celebrate Clags on its 10th anniversary. The past few months have been an especially difficult time for New York City, indeed, for the world. That we can gather here tonight together as a group is a reminder of not only our good fortune, but also the ways in which the collective work we do remains relevant. I want to spend some time tonight talking about how Judith Butler facilitates the work we do, indeed, how she is central to that work. And I want to talk, too, about how Judith Butler touches our lives. Last week, I taught one of my favorite essays, Critically Queer, the final chapter of Bodies That Matter, in an introductory course on ideology that I'm offering this semester. I asked my students what they thought about Butler's essay, and they were like, she's really smart. <laughs> and I was like, okay, how can you tell? And then they were like, she's really different 
from Katherine McKinnon. <laughs> They, really, they said that. We had just read only words. In what ways I persisted, hoping to get very specific on them. The class began discussing one of the central issues of the course, how ideology creates people, and how people, in turn, create ideology. A little while later, a very perceptive young woman brought up a passage we had analyzed earlier from the 18th Brumaire. In this passage, Marx explains how Napoleon Bonaparte hijacks the French Revolution by misrepresenting the interests of the proletariat so that, quote, they cannot represent themselves. They must be represented, end quote. Butler doesn't do that, my student observed. For me, this young woman's observation crystallizes in so many ways, not only the work that Judith Butler does, but also the person that Judith Butler is. Her comment made me think about how Judith, in her writings and in her everyday life, never represents others, but tirelessly and generously and brilliantly makes it such that others might represent themselves. Urgently, persistently, Judith's thinking interrogates the social and psychic limits by which those living on the margins are constrained to act, how ideology creates people, how it subjects subjects. But equally important, her writings are profoundly concerned with thinking how, given these significant constraints, we might nevertheless act, how people can recreate ideology, how we can fashion our lives differently how we might come to represent ourselves. In a recent article, Doing Justice to Someone, Judith writes, quote, by what norms am I constrained as I begin to ask what I may become, end quote. As the class continued discussing Critically Queer, my students' insight made increasing sense to me as one way of understanding the theoretical elegance and power of Judith's work. I realized how her writings return again and again, but from different angles and perspectives, to the very limits of representation, so that in the end, we are enabled. In fact, I was amazed to discover how so many of Judith's subsequent projects are already encoded in Critically Queer within this philosophical framework. The essay begins with a meditation on language and the performative and the risk involved in our attempts to turn a term of degradation and shame, queer, into something else, into something more affirming. This meditation on language later becomes excitable speech. In the middle of the essay, Judith offers a reading of gender melancholy, an extension of an idea initiated in her monumental gender trouble about what remains opaque, unconscious, and thus unperformable in the performance of gender. This reading of gender melancholy later assumes the form of another astonishing book, The Psychic Life of Power. Critically Queer concludes with a discussion of the documentary Paris is Burning. Here, Judith suggests that the film's critical intervention lies less in the imitation of a seamless femininity, heterosexuality, or whiteness than in the rearticulation of kinship that comes to define the houses and the mothering within them. 
This rearticulation of kinship and social collectivity is the subject of Judith's most recent achievement, Antigone's claim. For quite some time now, we have been aware of the enormous influence of Judith Butler's intellect in every field of the academy and beyond, that she is, quite simply, one of the finest thinkers of our time. However, there may be some who are less aware of the inspiring and generous, the dynamic and appealing ways of Judith Butler, the person. So before concluding my remarks this evening, I would like to talk about the personal fabulosity that is Judith Butler. <laughs> As I was preparing this testimonial, I emailed and spoke with a number of colleagues and friends from graduate school at Berkeley, all of whom studied and worked with Judith. Now that I have read more carefully, as Judith Butler taught me to do, one wrote back, I see that your email says testimony, but the poster for the event says testimonial. <laughs> Either way, Judy is fabulous, but I like testimony better than testimonial. Please change the posters to reflect my preference. <laughs> Other colleagues, heterosexual ones, were more helpful. <laughs> Yet, that's true too. Yet, as I began collecting these stories, I quickly realized that it would be impossible to represent the intellectual and personal impact that Judith has had upon all of us, her students and colleagues. There are just too many, and they cannot all be represented nor can all the unrecognized but crucial institutional labor that Judith performs on our behalf. Another colleague who flew in from California to be here this evening puts it this way. Judith does so much invisible labor for so many of us, and most of us will never even know it. The least we could do is be in her audience. She deserves that and so much more. What, be, what can be conveyed of the collective and the collective affect is this. Judith Butler is respected and loved by those she has personally touched, not only because of her brilliance and generosity, but also because as teacher, mentor, and friend, she never insists that you go where she is. Instead, she always comes to where you are, intellectually and empathetically. The range of these locations is staggering race, psychoanalysis, and Asian American literature in my case, or in other cases, just to give a small sampling, 18th century mercantilism, Afro-Caribbean culture and German vitalism, continental philosophy, Arabic feminism, Kafka, Beckett, and Joyce, censorship and profanity in turn-of-the-century America, Shakespeare, Chicano and post-colonial studies, music and philosophy, Asian-Canadian literature, Portuguese modernism, and my favorite, Sexual dimorphism in biology. <laughs> what a queer intellectual family indeed. As another friend describes it, this is what I tell people when they ask me why I did my dissertation of early American practices of race and citizenship with Ms. Gender Trouble. I had done months of research on the most obscure political economic debates on 18th century mercantilism, and I had written in detail about disputes within Marxism and classical economics. I was nervous because I was thinking she was going to tell me that we couldn't work together, since why the hell would she know anything about this weird topic? 
Instead, she not only regaled me with her standard remarkable close reading of my work, but also suggested that I look into another series of debates about mercantilism conducted by two of Karl Polanyi's students, debates I had never even heard of. As she summarized the details of the, of the debate in a detailed manner of your standard political economist wonk, I thought, this is just not fair. You are not supposed to know all of this. <laughs> of course, her advice was fantastic and sent me off on another round of productive research. Lest you all think that Judith is a complete softy, let me cite one last friend who writes about Judith, the kind but firm disciplinarian. <laughs> After a while, Judy forbade me from coming to any more of her lectures. I think I went to every version of her excitable speech talks, and she banned me from taking any more of her seminars. She told me that at some point, I was going to have, start, have to start writing my dissertation <laughs> instead of hanging around in her classes. So I wrote it. In my own case, I think about a scared but intrigued queer Chinese boy from Connecticut who during his second year in graduate school signed up for a seminar entitled Phantasmatic Genders, Political Performatives, having no idea whatsoever what a phantasmatic gender or a political performative was. I remember the kindness of Judith Butler who not only encouraged me to enroll in her course but also suggested writing her letters instead of more formal essays when I felt overwhelmed by the course materials. And I remember feeling something shifting in me that semester, something palpable, though inexpressible, as I decided to switch my graduate emphasis from classical Chinese to focus on the intersections of homosexuality and race in psychoanalysis and Asian American literature. I ended up writing four letters to Judith Butler that semester, I want to quote from the opening of my last missive, a class evaluation letter. Dear JB, this letter will be single-spaced. I figure that after my final letter, paper, double-spaced, you'd be sick of reading letters from me. But who knows, you seem to like letters. I usually have a difficult time doing class evaluations. I must say, however, that I enjoyed our seminar immensely I can't think of a more amazing introduction to a body of theory I do not have a lot of familiarity with. Unlike previous theory classes I've taken, I leave this course with not just a greater understanding of psychoanalysis, but an increased, not diminished, desire to further study the subject. The letter is dated March 30th, 1992. I recall what I now recognize as a very significant moment, a beginning as I stand here tonight at this Kessler lecture nearly 10 years later. Perhaps I should call Judith Butler the great facilitator, that she is infinitely encouraging, the promoter of beginnings, all the while not demanding intellectual fidelity on her own terms, is yet another example of the profoundly ethical ways in which Judith refuses to represent others, but instead creates the intellectual institutional and emotional space so that others can represent themselves. More than anyone I know, Judith comes to where you are, opening up along the way intellectual and institutional space for those of us whose work is not conventionally valued to flourish and to grow. This is Judith's ethics of the everyday the ways in which she practices her ideas as she touches the lives of those she supports and inspires 
through her teaching and writing, through her advocacy and activism, through her example and care. I cannot describe this as anything other than a gift. Let me close with a conversation that Judith and I had a while ago. I asked her what it's like to be a mother raising a young son with her partner, Wendy. Judith replied, oh, I've come to realize that gender is very overdetermined. <laughs> and she added, Isaac just discovered Britney Spears. <laughs> He's in his Britney Spears stage. He runs around the house singing, oops, I did it again. <laughs> and I think, how amazing. And I wonder to myself, what kind of psychic structure will he develop? <laughs> I think that Judith Butler, in her work and in her life, has changed all of our psychic structures in wonderful and significant ways. She has changed the larger social structures in which we live, the ways in which we think about some of the most fundamental categories of life. In the process, she makes the world a more inhabitable and humane place. And through her example, Judith Butler inspires us to do the same. I am thankful that we can publicly recognize her immense generosity together. And I offer my testimony testimonial this evening in admiration and with warmth. told to turn the mic toward my face, but it doesn't seem to have that. Yes, that, thank you. That was the word I wanted. Higher? I'm sorry. It needs Viagra, he said. Yes, Viagra for aging lesbians. I'm delighted to be here. I, I'm terrified only of swing dancing, and I hope there's no... Um, <laughs> while we may be expected to drink, I hope we're not all expected to swing dance. Sorry. I thank Alyssa Solomon and the CLAGS uh, board, and also Judith Butler, for inviting me to speak tonight. Judith Butler is one of the most important thinkers of our time. And she's a butch lesbian. <laughs> we are here to celebrate, well, I mean, it's hard not to say that as an opening for an aging lesbian. Uh, we are here to celebrate Judith Butler, and her gift to us consists in nothing less than this. First, a sustained investigation of the regulatory gender and sexual norms that masquerade as nature in the Western philosophical tradition. Second, a theory that compels us to think of gender, sexuality, and the erotogenic body as socio-historical phenomena 
vulnerable to change. Third, an original reconceptualization of the links between psychoanalysis and Foucault, one that explains how resistance to heterosexism and misogyny emerges not simply from within existing discourses, but from our passionate attachments to what has been excluded from those discourses and from definitions of viable or human lives. Change comes not only from reconfigurations of existing categories, or as Judy's Foucault in Gender Trouble would have it, from the pleasures of a pre-discursive body, but from the psychic, linguistic, and social work of acknowledging and mourning previously disavowed losses and challenging the circuitous route, in the words of Judith Butler now, by which the psyche accuses itself of its own worthlessness. The mourning of previously disavowed losses with all the rage and aggression, politically and personally, required of that mourning. Fourth, she has populated, indeed illustrated, her theoretical work with figures of girls and boys who like their girls and boys to be boys and girls, to sort of paraphrase one of my favorite formulations from Gender Trouble. She's populated her work with boys who are girls and girls who are boys and become them, and this in our time. For Judith Butler, there is no subject that does not have the constitution of gender and sexuality at its heart. No subject that has not been formed by queer desire and queer identifications, even in prohibited and disavowed form. Judith Butler is a crossover artist whose work has influenced countless disciplines, political discourses, social contexts, and as my partner Carol Maxwell Miller asked me to say on Judy's behalf, she's even influenced private lives for those who prefer to bring their discipline, their uniforms, their lack of uniformity into the marabou boudoir. <laughs> Judith Butler has made lasting trouble for philosophy, literary theory, cultural studies, feminist theory, and a range of other fields. She is one of the most important thinkers of our time. Our time extends to this moment and to an opportunity which she has helped create, as many of those in this audience have too, one which a child growing up in the 50s and 60s could never have imagined especially if you grew up in Jerry, outside of Jerry Falwell's Lynchburg, Virginia, could never have imagined, but one did. Judith Butler, we're here publicly to honor a philosopher who has done more than any other to expose the limits of what our social and discursive worlds count as legitimate life, and who has helped create the situation in which mind bodies, scarred by abjection, rejection, and scorn now matter, bodies that matter. Many of us have our own corridors back and forward to the pain associated with gender trouble and kinship straits, but not all of us have dealt with that pain by subjecting it to thought, to sustained work, making our struggles for understanding and change public in the form of a project released into the world for use, but also, at times, abusive scrutiny. Judith Butler has had the courage, the talent, the discipline to persevere, 
to turn both pain and pleasure into thought, into writing, into performance, to work it through rather than deflecting for the benefit of all of us. She's had the courage to deal with fame and the pain to which that exposes her. Object as one so public easily becomes of competitiveness and the violence of idealization. Audiences demand that she accept their forms of recognition as her identity, that she permit us to install her in the position we need to have her occupy, that she have the phallus, but only in the ways we wish her to have and then to bestow it. Making queer desires and identifications figural has not led Judith Butler to erect a boundary between what's figural at any given moment or time and what remains for at least that time or place in the background. The task, she writes, is to compel the terms of modernity to embrace those they have traditionally excluded and to know that such an embrace cannot be easy. This is not a simple assimilation and accommodation of what has been excluded into existing terms, but rather the admission of a sense of difference and futurity into modernity that establishes for that time an unknown future, one that can only produce anxiety in those who seek to patrol its conventional boundaries." End of quote. There is no one subject of history or of liberation for Judith Butler. There is no one ethics. There is only a working against absolute and premature closures and for a psychic and social flexibility that remains open to the future when yet unimagined things and people will materialize and become figural. I love Judith Butler's writing. Following her work has been and continues to be one of the most significant experiences of my life. She writes with an audience and a project in mind. I love the almost ritual pedagogical flair of her writing, the invitations to her readers. I love sentences that begin with consider. <laughs> I love to see consider at the beginning of a new sentence. I always think to myself, okay, yes. <laughs> she displays the work of thought of rigorous thought. She displays it, and there's now a familiar rhythm to it, to the work of Judith Butler. The rhythm of her serious and seriously creative playing toward reality, as a Winnicottian might say. All the serious play involving pain and work, it can have at times a ritual feel, even an obsessional feel, as her idiosyncratic style sometimes does, with its pleasurably fetishistic returns and its new departures. Let me briefly illustrate return, reiteration, and departure in her writing. In The Psychic Life of Power, Judy revisits her work on gender performativity. She writes, quote, the relation between drag performances and gender performativity in gender trouble goes something like this. And then she gives us one of her famous paraphrases. I'm gonna skip the paraphrase. <laughs> I'm still quoting. However attractive this formulation may have seemed, she writes, it didn't address the question of how certain forms of disavowal and repudiation come to organize the performance of gender. How is the phenomenon of gender melancholia related to the phenomenon of gender performativity? Those wonderful rhetorical questions. What comes after the rhetorical question? 
I'm quoting. No, I'm not. Uh, this is me now. <laughs> <laughs> Identification, departure. No. Butler worries about... <laughs> Butler worries about the evacuation of psychic life and then on the reliance on the part of a Foucault on the body's pleasures as a site of extra discursive potential. And she searches for more adequate theories of psychic life in psychoanalysis in the psychic life of power. Psychoanalysis, not quite. Against Foucault, she argues for the need of a, for a theory of loss and melancholia because resistance cannot be derived from what is in or of discourse, as she writes, and I'm quoting her again. If the very process of subject formation, however, requires the preemption of sexuality, a founding prohibition that prohibits a certain desire, that itself becomes the focus of desire, then a subject is formed through the prohibition of a sexuality, a prohibition that at the same time forms the sexuality and the subject who is said to bear it. Is that not a Judith Butler sentence? In the syntax of that sentence, we see the characteristic sachet, the intertwining and indwelling of every term and every other, a moving forward only by way of a return, a, re a reiteration and a departure, a circling back, not a linear exit. The prohibitive law and our sexual formation are braided together in this world, not dictated by the terms of an otherworldly absolute. And in Judith Butler's syntax, and in her grammar, and in her rhetorical style, we have enacted the very thing which her theory would try to teach us. Thought rendered aesthetic, often lyrical, thought that deserves a following and has found one. The rewards to me of having followed her work are enormous, but it is a writing and a style that also incites by example, a desire not only to repeat or reiterate, which many of us have done in response to her work over and over again, but also to insert our own version of not quite, not exactly, not precisely, consider. Because from any reader's point of view and affective stance, there is always a subtle or not so subtle other way. And Judith Butler's writing style incites us to find it ourselves. She gives us the possibility of the life-bearing positivity of a departure, to use the words of Kathy Carruth. But to hear Judith Butler is not the same as to read her. Her presentations publicly are artful. The argument carries forward a much larger project, and that background emerges in whatever has been made figural for a particular presentation. The argument reveals the movements of her thought, the perhaps this, but not quite, the rhetorical question, cautious response, the perfectly timed interval of silence, and then the however. I find her presentations elegant in a butch kind of way. <laughs> the stance, the wit, outright humor delivered with a subtle glance and a cock of the head. I have heard her deliver a sentence that appears to announce a truth in exacting form only to have her fall silent for a perfect interval before she inserts, not exactly. <laughs> Two words that have more meaning and require more thought and rethinking than many entire books on the subject. Let me dwell just for a moment on her humor. Judith Butler is one of the funniest people I know. Her funniest essay, in my opinion, 
And one of her funniest lines is in her funniest essay, which I take to be the lesbian phallus, which entails a deconstruction of Freud and Lacan. And in the first paragraph, she writes, quote, it may not seem that the lesbian phallus has much to do with what you're about to read, but I assure you, parentheses, promise you, question mark, end of parentheses, that it couldn't have been done without it. <laughs> Not to mention that famous formulation about the, the plasticity and transferability of the phallus, an organ like any other, with no property unto itself alone. The lesbian phallus is on the lookout for premature closers and premature closures for thought that has come to rest on dubious foundations. Judith Butler does not settle, and she finds it hard to rest. Her searching is life-giving for those of us who have seen ourselves, figments of ourselves, at the heart of some of the most rigorous philosophy produced in our time. As a friend, she is unparalleled. And what Judith Butler knows about the very thin membrane between melancholia and mourning in the face of loss has given me over and over again the chance again to reattach to the world and to produce my own work. For that, I thank her. I love your writing, and I love you, Judy Butler. <laughs> moved. Um, I thank David for your, for your own fabulosity and <laughs> Biddy for your, your extraordinary words and, um, uh, and, and, and Clags for uh, thinking of me and honoring me. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's extremely, uh, extremely important to me um, and I have to admit that I'm a little bit daunted by the occasion and by the honor. Um, it's wonderful for me to think that perhaps I've made a, what's it called, a significant contribution um, <laughs> of some sort to the work you do or even to the lives you live. Um, but the truth is that I would be nowhere without you. Uh, I'm not sure I would have stayed in the academy if it were not for this emerging field. And I think it emerged precisely at a moment to catch me and to, in some sense, um, keep me in the academy. I was already, uh, in a serious way, on my way out. Um, uh, and it's given me, I think, this field um, more than I've given it. It's given me a home, an incitement, a, prov a provocation. So um, I would simply like to take this opportunity to thank you, and thank you especially for coming um, I'd like to speak to you this evening on the matter of politics and specifically how the struggles of gender and sexual minorities might offer a perspective on current issues that are before us. Questions of mourning and violence, 
uh, which we have to deal with as part of an international community. Can you hear me? No? That's so shocking. Okay. This thing, this, is this the actual thing that we're... <laughs> this is the mic right here? This thing here. Ah, oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. So I'd like to start, and uh, if I can, um, and to end, really, um, with the question of the human. Um, of who counts as, as the human. And the related question of, of whose lives count as lives. And with a question that has, I think, preoccupied many of us in this room for years, um, what makes for a grievable life? I believe that whatever our differences as a community, and there are many, we all have some notion of what it is to have lost somebody. And we've lost. And if we've lost, then it seems to follow that we have had, that we have desired and loved, and struggled to find the conditions for our desire. We've all lost in recent decades from AIDS. But there are other losses that inflict us, other diseases. And there is the fact, as well, that we are, I think, as a community, subjected to violence, even if some of us have not been. And this means that we are constituted politically, in part, by virtue of the social vulnerability of our bodies, as a field of desire and physical vulnerability of a publicity at once assertive and targeted. I'm not sure I know exactly what mourning is or when it's successful, or when one has said to have fully mourned another human being. I'm certain, though, that it doesn't mean that you've forgotten them or that something else comes along to take their place. I don't think it works that way. I think instead that one mourns when one accepts the fact that the loss one undergoes will be one which changes you, changes you possibly forever, and that mourning has to do with agreeing to undergo a transformation, the full result of which you cannot know in advance. So there's losing, and there is the transformative effect of loss, and this latter cannot be charted or planned. I don't think, for instance, you can invoke a Protestant ethic when it comes to loss. You can't say, oh, I'll go through loss this way, and that will be the result, and I'll apply myself to the task, and I'll endeavor to achieve the resolution of grief that is before me. <laughs> I think you get hit by waves, and you start out the day with an aim, a project, a plan. You find yourself foiled. You find yourself falling. You're exhausted. You don't know why. Something is larger than your own deliberate plan, your own project, your own knowing. Something takes hold of you, and what sense does this make? 
What is it that claims us at such moments such that we are not the masters of ourselves? To what are we tied and by what are we seized? Is it simply the case that we're undergoing something temporary or is it rather that in undergoing what we do, something about who we are is revealed, something which delineates the ties we have to others that shows us that the ties are what we are, what we are composed of. When we lose these ties, especially some of them, we do not know who we are or what to do. Many people think that grief is privatizing, that it returns us to a solitary situation, but I think it has and can furnish a sense of political community of a complex order. And it's not just that I might be said to have these relations, which I have lost and loved, and sit back and enumerate them to you, explaining what this friendship means, what that lover meant or means to me. On the contrary, it seems that what grief displays is the way in which we are all in the thrall of our relations with others in ways that we cannot always recount or explain, in ways that often interrupt the self-conscious account of ourselves we might try to provide, in ways that challenge the very notion of ourselves as autonomous and in control. I might try to tell a story here about what I am feeling, but it would have to be a story in which the very I who seeks to tell the story is stopped in the midst of the telling. The very I is called into question by its relation to the other, a relation that does not precisely reduce me to speechlessness, but does nevertheless clutter my speech with signs of its undoing. Let's face it, we're undone by each other. And if we're not, we're missing something. <laughs> this seems so clearly the case with grief, but this can be so only because it was already the case with desire. One does not always stay intact. It may be that what one, that one wants to stay intact or does for a while, but it may also be that despite one's best efforts, one is undone in the face of the other, by the touch, by the scent, by the feel, by the prospect of the touch, by the memory of the feel. And so when we speak about my sexuality or my gender, as each of us do and as each of us must, we mean something complicated by it, since it's not precisely a possession, but rather a mode of being dispossessed, a way of being for another or by virtue of another. It won't even do to say that I am promoting a relational view of the self over an autonomous one, <laughs> or trying to redescribe autonomy in terms of relationality. We tend to narrate the history of the movement in such a way that ecstasy figures in the 60s and 70s and midway through the 80s and then it stops. But maybe ecstasy is more persistent than that. <laughs> maybe it's with us all along. To be ecstatic means literally, etymologically, to be outside oneself. And this can has, have several meanings. To be transported beyond oneself by a passion, but also to be beside oneself with rage or grief. I think that if I can still speak to a we or include myself within its terms, I am speaking to those of us who are living in certain ways besides ourselves whether it is in sexual passion or emotional grief or political rage. I'm arguing, if I'm arguing at all, 
that we have an interesting political predicament since most of the time when we hear about rights, we understand them as pertaining to individuals or when we argue for protection against discrimination, we argue as a group or a class. And in that language and in that context, we have to present ourselves as bounded beings, distinct, recognizable, delineated, a subject before the law, a community defined by sameness. Indeed, we had better be able to use that language to secure legal protections and entitlements. But perhaps we make a mistake if we take the definitions of who we are legally to be adequate descriptions of what we are about. And though this language might well establish our legitimacy within a legal framework ensconced in liberal versions of human ontology, it doesn't do justice to passion and grief and rage, all of which tear us from ourselves, bind us to one another, transport us, undo us, implicate us in lives that are not our own, fatally, irreversibly. It's not easy to understand how a political community is wrought from such ties. One speaks, one speaks for another, to another, and yet there is no way to collapse the distinction between the other and myself. When we say we, we do nothing more than designate this very problematic. We do not solve it, and perhaps it is and ought to be insoluble. I don't want to forget that there are bodies here and that bodies are in a certain sense our own, that over which we must claim rights of autonomy. This is as true for lesbian and gay rights, those claims in favor of sexual freedom, as it is for transsexual and transgender claims to self-determination, as it is to intersex claims to be free of coerced medical and psychiatric interventions, as it is for all claims to be free of racist attacks, physical and verbal, as it is for feminism's claim to reproductive freedom. It's difficult, if not impossible, to make any of these claims without recourse to autonomy. And I'm not suggesting that we cease to make these claims. We have to, we must. And I'm not saying that we have to make these claims reluctantly or strategically. They're part of any normative aspiration of a movement that seeks to maximize the protection and the freedoms of sexual and gender minorities, of women defined with the broadest possible compass, of racial and ethnic minorities, especially as they cut across all the other categories. But is there another normative aspiration that we must also seek to articulate and to defend? Is there a way in which the place of the body in all of these struggles opens up a different conception of politics, one that is related to the problem of grief? The body implies mortality, vulnerability, agency. The skin and the flesh expose us to the gaze of others, but also to touch and to violence. And the body can be the agency and instrument of all those as well. Although we struggle for rights over our own bodies, the very bodies for which we struggle are not quite ever only our own. The body has its invariably public dimension. Constituted as a social phenomenon in the public sphere, my body is and is not mine. If it is given over from the start to the world of others bearing their imprint formed within the crucible of social life, it is only later and with some uncertainty that I lay claim to my body as my own. Indeed, if I seek to deny the fact that my body relates me and against my will and from the start to others I do not choose to have in proximity to myself, if I build a notion of autonomy on the basis of that denial of this sphere of a primary and unwilled physical proximity with others, 
then do I precisely deny the social and political conditions of my embodiment in the name of autonomy? If I'm struggling for autonomy, do I need to be struggling for something else as well? A conception of myself as invariably in community, impressed upon by others, impressing upon them as well, and in ways that are not fully predictable. Is there a way that we might struggle for autonomy in many spheres, but also consider the demands that are imposed upon us by living in a world of beings who are, by definition, physically dependent on one another, physically vulnerable to one another? Is this not another way of imagining community and imagining it in such a way that it becomes incumbent upon us to consider very carefully when and where we use violence? For violence is always an exploitation of that primary tie, that primary way in which we are as bodies outside ourselves and for one another. If I might then return to the problem of grief, to the moments in which one undergoes something which is outside of one's control, one finds that one is beside oneself, not at one with oneself, perhaps we can say grief contains within it the possibility of apprehending the fundamental sociality of embodied life, the ways in which we are from the start and by virtue of being a bodily being already given over beyond ourselves, implicated in lives that are not our own. Can this situation, one which is so dramatic for us, one which establishes a very specific political perspective for anyone who works in the field of sexual and gender politics, supply a perspective by which we might begin to apprehend the contemporary global situation? Mourning, fear, anxiety, rage. And in the United States, we are everywhere now surrounded with violence of having perpetrated it, having suffered it, living in fear of it, planning more of it, Violence is surely a touch of the worst order, a way in, which the, a way in which human vulnerability is exposed in its most terrifying way, a way in which we are given over without control to the will of another, the way in which life itself can be expunged by the willful action of another. To the extent that we commit violence, we are acting upon another, putting the other at risk, causing the other damage, seeking to expunge the other. In a way, we all live with this particular vulnerability, a vulnerability to the other which is part of bodily life, but this vulnerability becomes highly exacerbated under certain social and political conditions. This is a vulnerability which becomes the basis of claims for non-militaristic political solutions. We cannot will away this vulnerability. It is that to which we must attend, even abide by, as we begin to think about what politics might be implied by staying with the thought of corporeal vulnerability itself. I think, for instance, that we have seen and are seeing various ways of dealing with grief, so that, for instance, William Sapphire, citing Milton, of all things, writes in the New York Times that we must banish melancholy, <laughs> so that President Bush announces on September 21st, 10 full days, that we've finished grieving, <laughs> and that now it is time for resolute action to take the place of grief. When grieving is feared, it seeks to resolve itself quickly, to banish itself in the name of an action that is invested with the power to restore the loss or rectify the world. But is there something to be gained from grieving, from tarrying with grief, remaining exposed to its unbearability, and not endeavoring to seek a resolution for grief through violence? Is there something to be gained in the political domain by maintaining grief as part of the framework by which we think our international ties. 
If we stay with the sense of loss, are we left feeling only passive and powerless as some fear? Or are we rather returned to a sense of human vulnerability, to our collective responsibility for the physical lives of one another? The attempt to foreclose that vulnerability, to banish it, to make ourselves secure at the expense of every other human consideration is surely also to eradicate one of the most important resources from which we must take our bearings and find our way. To grieve and to make grief itself into a resource for politics is not to be resigned to a simple passivity or powerlessness. It is rather to allow oneself to extrapolate from this experience of vulnerability to those of others, others from whom we may well be able to protect from violence itself. There's a more general conception of the human with which I am working here, one in which we are from the start given over to the other, one in which we are from the start even prior to individuation and by virtue of our embodiment given over to another. This makes us vulnerable to violence but also to another range of touch, a range which includes the eradication of our being at the one end and the physical support for our lives on the other. And there's a further point which I hope will become clear and that is that we cannot recover the source of this vulnerability for it precedes the formation of this I, this subject that I am. It is a condition, a condition of being laid bare with which it is difficult to argue. I mean, we can argue with it, but we are perhaps foolish, if not dangerous, when we do. And of course, we can say that for some, this primary scene is a scene of abandonment or violence or starvation, that these are bodies given over to nothing or from the start to brutality or from the start to no sustenance, and that is true. But they must, if we are to understand why that is an injustice, we must understand that they are given over and, and that something should be there for them. It is only through this understanding, I think, that we can grasp um, that there is no way to argue away this condition of primary vulnerability uh, or being given over to the touch of the other even if or precisely when there is no other there and no support for our lives. Another part of countering impression, oppression involves understanding that lives are supported and maintained differentially, that there are radically different ways in which human physical vulnerability is distributed across the globe. Certain lives will be highly protected and the abrogation of their claims to sanctity will be sufficient to mobilize the forces of war. And other lives will not find such fast and furious support and will not even qualify as grievable. A hierarchy of grief could no doubt be enumerated, and we've seen it already in the genre of the obituary, where lives are so quickly tidied up and summarized, humanized, usually married or on the way to be, heterosexual, happy, monogamous. But this is just a sign of another differential relation to life, since we rarely, if ever, hear the names of the thousands of Palestinians who have died by the Israeli military with US support, or indeed the 200,000 Iraqi children who have died as a result of the Gulf War. And when will we ever hear the names of the Afghani people, children and adults, who have lost their lives or whose starvation has been guaranteed by the current war strategy? What defense against the apprehension of loss is at work in the blithe way in which we accept death as caused by military means with a shrug or with a self-righteousness or with clear vindictiveness? Do those who support the war consider these as lives at all? Do they conform to the notion of the human? And if not, what are the cultural contours of the notion of the human at work here? 
and how do the contours that we accept as the cultural frame for the human limit, for the human, limit the extent to which we can avow loss as loss? This is surely a question that lesbian, gay, and bi studies has asked in relation to violence against sexual minorities that transgendered people have asked as they have been singled out for harassment and sometimes murder, that intersexed people have asked whose formative years have so often been marked by an unwanted violence against their bodies in the name of a normative notion of the human, a normative notion of what the body of the human must be. This is no doubt as well the basis of a profound affinity between movements revolving around gender and sexuality with efforts to counter the normative human morphologies and capacities that condemn or efface those who are physically challenged. And it must also be part of the affinity with anti-racist struggles given the racial differential that undergirds the culturally viable notions of the human, ones that we see acted out in dramatic and terrifying ways in the global arena at the present time. You know, I've never been very good at the autobiographical. <laughs> I start to tell my story, or I think I'm telling my story, and it turns out that it's still too abstract or no one gets it. <laughs> and I gave a paper recently in which I thought I had revealed myself in highly excruciating ways only to hear from my friends that I had concealed myself perfectly. <laughs> But some of my friends have said that I have to give a context for my concerns. And I have to say, I don't exactly know how to do that. But perhaps I can say, without going into detail, <laughs> that it might be helpful for people to know that I suffered violence as a child, violence that scarred my face, a face you could not see through the scarring and my body and many times, and much of this was related to the way I did my gender or rather failed to do it. Might be helpful to know that my uncle, a man named Harold, and some of you from a long time ago heard this story, was institutionalized because he was not morphologically right, because he did not have <coughs> genitals which looked the way my grandparents thought they should, and that after developing a behavioral problem, um, which consisted of exposing those singularly formed parts of, parts of himself to the audiences who came to my grandfather's movie theaters. <laughs> he was sent away to an institute in Kansas where he lived, apparently, for several decades alone and died. So perhaps it should be added that violence is not an abstraction and that if I have learned nonviolence, as I have attempted to do, it has been a struggle, a practice, an arduous ethical demand. Nonviolence doesn't mean doing away with rage. It is the ethical practice of cultivating one's rage into articulation. And if I had to say what drove me to queer theory, I don't know if queer is a verb there or not, because <laughs> we kind of, well, I mean, we, you know, there are a bunch of us who kind of came into it together, you know, I mean, so it wasn't there to go to, but it became part of what we were. Um, it was probably this ethical problematic, one that pertains to rage and to desire. I haven't been able to do very well without either. They are my resources. They carry with them, as you might imagine, a set of risks. So, to get back to my topic then, what is the relation? See, I did it, briefly. <laughs> Thank you. But it was saving, you know, I went down the basement, they had all these books on Spinoza from their college courses and stuff, and I thought, oh, this is good. So, got me out. 
okay, what's the relation between violence and what is unreal, between violence and the unreality that attends to those who become the victims of violence? Where does the notion of the ungrievable life come in? It would be one thing to argue that first, on the level of discourse, certain lives are not considered lives at all. They cannot be humanized. They fit no dominant frame for the human. Their dehumanization occurs first at this level, and then this level gives rise to a physical violence that in some sense delivers the message of dehumanization that is already at work in the culture. If 200,000 Iraqi children were killed during the Gulf War and its aftermath, do we have an image, a frame for any of those lives, singly or collectively? Is there a story we might find about those deaths in the media? Are there names attached to those children? There's no obituary for the war casualties that the US inflicts, and there cannot be. For there to be an obituary, there would have had to have been a life, a life worth noting, a life worth valuing and preserving, a life that would qualify for recognition. And though we might argue that it would be impractical to include obituaries for all those people or for all people, I think we have to ask again and again how the obituary functions as the instrument by which grievability is publicly distributed, the means by which a life becomes or fails to become a publicly grievable life, an icon for national self-recognition in recent days, the means by which a life becomes noteworthy. As a result, I think we have to think the obituary as an act of nation building. And the matter is not so simple, since if the life is not grievable, it's not quite a life. It does not qualify as a life, and it's not worth a note. It is already the unburied and the unburiable. It's not that the death is poorly marked, but that it is unmarkable. And it vanishes not into explicit discourse, but in the ellipses by which discourse proceeds. The queer lives that vanished on September 11th are not publicly welcomed into the idea of national identity currently being built in the obituary pages. But this should come as no surprise when we think as well how many deaths from AIDS were publicly ungrievable losses, and how, for instance, the extensive deaths now taking place in, in Africa, and estimated to be 28 million, are also in the media, for the most part, unmarkable and ungrievable. So it's not just that a discourse exists in which there's no frame, no story, no name for such a life, that violence might be said to realize or apply this discourse. Violence against those who are already not quite lives, who are living in a state of suspension between life and death, leaves a mark that is no mark. If there is a discourse, it is a silent and melancholic writing in which there have been no lives and no losses. There has been no common physical condition, no vulnerability that serves as the basis for an apprehension of our commonality, and there has been no sundering of that commonality. None of this takes place on the order of the event. None of this takes place. Don't get me wrong, it may be reported, there may be a story, there may even be a picture of the face of this or that leader of a terrorist gang who is dramatically personified for us, but even these occasional personifications are not humanizations. They become, like the media representations of bin Laden, visual icons of the only apparently human, the deceptively human. In the images which he supplies and the media absorbs and distributes, he smiles, but that's no smile. His eyes seem kind, but he's most certainly not kind. He's the lure of the surface, the personification of the lie, the face that distorts the very expressivity of the face. And, if, and it wouldn't matter if it were just bin Laden, but he is standing for, he is representing, he is being generalized into the Islamic menace, the true meaning of Islam, the terror that lies behind every Islamic charity, 
the, the lie that Islam is for the government and for the media, which so quickly and consistently forgets the difference between the various practices of Islam and its extremist version, or rather takes the former to be the lie behind which the latter hides. And I take it that the current focus on charities is precisely this. I began these remarks this evening with a suggestion that perhaps the interrelated movements and modes of inquiry that collect here this evening might need, on the one hand, to consider autonomy as one dimension of our normative aspiration, one value to realize when we ask ourselves in what direction ought we to proceed, what kinds of values ought we to be realizing. I suggested as well that the way in which the body figures in gender and sexuality studies and in the struggles for a less oppressive world for the otherwise gendered and for sexual minorities of all kinds is precisely to underscore the value of being beside oneself, of being a porous boundary given over to others, finding oneself in a trajectory of desire that takes you out of yourself, resituates you irreversibly in the field of others. The particular sociality that belongs to bodily life, to sexual life, and to becoming gendered, which is always, to a certain extent, being gendered for others, establishes a field of ethical enmeshment with others. We are, as bodies, always for something more than and other than ourselves. To articulate this as an entitlement is not always easy, but perhaps not impossible. It suggests, for instance, that association and the freedom of association is not a luxury, but one of the very conditions and prerogatives of freedom. Indeed, the kinds of associations we maintain importantly have many forms, and it will not do, by the way, to extol the marriage norm as the new ideal for this movement. It should be there as an option, but to instate it, <laughs> but to instate it as the exclusive side of sexuality or legitimacy is precisely to constrain the sociality of the body. And though it is clear, especially in light of seriously damaging judicial decisions against second parent adoptions in recent months, which have luckily been overturned, as last I heard, it is crucial to expand our notions of kinship beyond the heterosexual frame. It would be a mistake, however, to reduce kinship to family or to assume that all community ties are extrapolation of kinship relations. Kinship ties that bind persons to one another may well be no more or less than the intensification of community ties, may or may not be based on enduring or exclusive sexual relations, may well consist of ex-lovers, non-lovers, friends, community members. In this sense, the relations of kinship arrive at boundaries that call into question the distinguishability of kinship from community, or which perhaps call for a different conception of friendship. These modes of association constitute a breakdown of traditional kinship that not only displaces the central place of biological and sexual relations from its definition, but gives sexuality a separate domain from that of kinship, allowing as well for the durable tie to be thought outside of the conjugal frame, and opening sexuality to a number of social articulations that do not always imply binding relations or conjugal ties. That not all of our relations last or are meant to, however, does not mean that we are immune to grief. On the contrary, Sexuality outside the field of monogamy may well open us to a different sense of community, intensifying the question of where one finds enduring ties, and so become the condition for an attunement to losses that exceed the private realm. So in response to the question, what political perspectives might be derived from the resources of this complex notion of community, we might supply a perspective on violence, on the public distribution of legitimate grief, 
the public or rather national allocation of grievable lives. We can also, I think, consider what politics comes of grief, what politics comes from its hasty foreclosure. If revenge is the quick way to escape from the feeling of loss, it does this only by instigating a cycle of revenge that redoubles the loss in the end. Perhaps we should be providing more queer readings of Aeschylus for the nation state. But perhaps we also wonder whether perspectives emerging from sexuality and gender studies really have political implications now. Are we secondary or beside the point? The question, well, precisely, I think, because the nation state is being produced again and again along lines of consensus that centralize the heterosexual family and property and national boundary and which degrade not only civil liberties and the practice of dissent, but freedom itself as a democratic value. It would be crucial to make our claims for autonomy, our claims for association, our claim on reality, all the more active and vigilant. Reality is being made and remade during these times in dramatic and consequential ways. And for those who know what it is to be treated as unreal, it is all the more important that the unreal speak in its name, if only to disrupt and to compel a reshaping of reality in another direction. The question of who and what is considered real and true is apparently a question of knowledge. It is also, as Foucault makes plain, a question of power. Having or bearing truth and reality is an enormously powerful prerogative within the social world, one way which power dissimulates as ontology. Here I'm gonna just leave my loving appreciation of Foucault to the side for a moment. <laughs> um, but what I do think is that to intervene in the name of transformation, social transformation, means precisely to disrupt what has become settled knowledge and knowable reality and to use, as it were, one's unreality to make an otherwise impossible or illegible claim. I think that when the unreal lay claim to reality or enter into its domain, something other than a simple, simple assimilation into prevailing norms can and does take place. The norms themselves can become rattled, display their instability, become open to a resignification. I think we've seen this in recent years as the new gender politics has offered numerous challenges from transgendered and transsexual peoples and as the intersex movement has gained some place in public life. My earlier example of drag was no doubt too simple and too quick to come close to doing justice to this terrain. But one of the criticisms of it, namely that butch, femme, transgendered lives are not essential to refashioning politics. This, I think, not only failed to acknowledge the violence that the otherwise gendered suffer in the public world, but failed as well to recognize that embodiment is crucial to politics. Indeed, if we consider that embodiment cannot really proceed without a relation to a norm, or a set of norms, that that relation can be transformative and that fantasy is part of that relation, then it's not possible to demean transgendered lives as so many individuals living out their private fantasies who have no real impact on political life. Not only would I insist that the struggle to survive is not really separable from the cultural life of fantasy, but I would also insist that the foreclosure of fantasy is one strategy for providing for the social death of persons. Fantasy is not the opposite of reality. It is what reality forecloses, and it operates to delimit and challenge the limits of what will and will not be called reality. Fantasy is what allows us to imagine ourselves and others otherwise. 
It establishes the possible in excess of the real. It points. It points elsewhere. And when it is embodied, it brings the elsewhere home. How does drag, or indeed much more than drag, butch, femme, transgender, transsexual, enter the political field? It does this, I would suggest, in several ways. But, it all, it, but one, one that I would suggest here is that it makes us not only question what is real and what has to be, but it shows us how the norms that govern contemporary notions of reality can be questioned and new modes of reality instituted. It shows that we can do this in our very embodiment and as a consequence of being a body in the mode of becoming, that becoming otherwise exceeds the norm, reworks the norm, makes us see how realities to which we thought we were confined are not written in stone. Although some people have asked me, what is finally the use of simply increasing possibilities for gender? I would suggest that possibility is not a luxury. It is, crucial as, it is as crucial as bread. I think we should not underestimate what the thought of the possible does for those for whom the very issue of survival is most urgent. If the answer to the question, is life possible, is yes, that is surely something. It cannot be taken for granted. That is an affirmation which, for many, is an accomplishment, one that is fundamentally conditioned by reality being structured or restructured in such a way that that very affirmation becomes thinkable. So this is one way in which the matter is and continues to be political, but there's something more. Since what the perhaps naive example of drag sought to do in gender trouble was to make us question the means by which reality is made and to consider the way in which being called real, being called unreal, can be not only a means of social control, but dehumanizing violence. I would put it this way, to be called unreal, to have that call, as it were, institutionalized as a form of differential treatment, is to become the other against whom, or against which, the human is made. It is the inhuman, the beyond the human, the less than human, the border that secures the human in its ostensible reality. To be called a copy, to be called unreal, is one way in which one can be oppressed. But consider that it is more fundamental than that. To be oppressed means that you already exist as a subject of some kind. You're there as the visible and oppressed other for the master subject, or a possible or potential subject who must be restrained. But to be unreal is something else again. To be oppressed, you must first become intelligible. To find that you are fundamentally unintelligible, indeed that the laws of culture and of language find you to be an impossibility, is to find that one has not yet achieved access to the human, to find oneself speaking only and always as if one were human, but with the sense that one is not, to find that one's language is hollow, that no recognition is forthcoming because the norms by which recognition takes place are not in your favor. The point about drag was not simply to produce a pleasurable and subversive spectacle, but to allegorize the spectacular and consequential ways in which reality is both reproduced and contested. And this has consequences for how gender presentations are criminalized, pathologized, how subjects who cross gender risk internment and imprisonment, why, why violence against transgender, transgendered subjects is not always recognized as violence, why it is sometimes inflicted by the very states who should be offering such subjects protection from violence. So when I'm asked the question, what if new forms of gender are possible? How does this affect the ways that we live, the concrete needs of the human community? It seems to me that we have to 
distinguish between, and, and then the second question is, how are we just to distinguish between forms of gender possibility that are valuable and those that are not? First, I would say that it's not a question merely of producing a new future for genders that do not yet exist, although that would be nice. The genders I have in mind have been existing for a long time, but they've not been admitted into the terms that govern reality. So it's a question of developing within law, within psychiatry, within social and literary theory and practice, a new legitimating lexicon for the gender complexity that we have always been living. But because the norms governing reality have not admitted those forms to be real, we will, of necessity, call them new. But I hope we will at least laugh knowingly when and if we do. If we think that this, that this is a theory of mere indulgence, then consider that the necessary background for gender trouble is the question of survival, the question of how to create a world in which those who understand their gender and their desire to be non-normative can live and thrive, not only without the threat of violence from the outside, but without the pervasive sense of their own unreality, which can and has led to suicide, both suicidal life and quite literally suicide. <clears throat> Lastly, I would ask what place the thinking of the possible has within political theorizing. One can object and say, ah, but you're trying only to make gender complexity possible. That doesn't tell us the forms that are good or bad, doesn't supply the measure, the gauge, the norm. That's right, doesn't supply the measure, the gauge, the norm. But there is a normative aspiration and it has to do with the ability to live and to breathe and to move, and would no doubt belong somewhere in what is called a philosophy of freedom. The thought of a possible life is only an indulgence for those who already know themselves to be possible, for those who are still looking to become possible, possibility is a necessity. The desire to kill someone or killing someone for not conforming to the gender norm by which he or she is supposed to live suggests that life itself requires this norm, that to be outside it, to live outside it, is in some ways to court death. The person who threatens the, the person who is outside of gender norms or challenging them in some way with violence emerges, I think, uh, or, or, or shows us, I think, uh, an anxious and rigid belief uh, that a sense of the world and a sense of self will be radically undermined if such a being who challenges categories is permitted to live within the social world. The negation through violence of that body is a vain and violent effort to restore order, to renew the social basis on, to renew the social world on the basis of intelligible gender. To refuse the challenge to rethink that world is something other than natural or necessary. This is not far removed from the threat of death or the murder itself of transsexuals in various countries of gay men who read feminine, gay women who read masculine. There are many examples, they are graphic, they are widespread, sometimes countered by local police, sometimes aided and abetted by local police. Sometimes denounced by governments and international agencies, sometimes not included as legible or real crimes against humanity by those very institutions. But if we oppose this violence, then we oppose it in the name of what? What is the alternative to this violence? And for what transformation of the social world do we call? If we understand this violence to emerge from a profound desire to keep the order of binary gender natural or necessary, to make of it a structure, either natural or cultural, or both, that no human can oppose and still remain human. If someone opposes these norms, and not just by having a point of view on them, but if someone opposes these norms, and this opposition is incorporated into the body, the corporeal style of this person, and that stylized opposition is legible, that it seems that violence emerges precisely 
as the demand to counter that opposition. This is not simply a difference in point of views, points of view, I think. To counter that opposition by violence is to say effectively that this body, this challenge to an accepted version of the world is and shall be unthinkable. It is an effort to, expend, uh, to expunge what renders the gendered order of intelligibility contingent, frail, open to fundamental transformation. So the ethical task that emerges in light of such an analysis might be said to be this. How might we encounter the difference that calls our grids of intelligibility into question without trying to foreclose the challenge that the difference delivers? What might it mean to learn to live in the anxiety of that challenge, to feel the surety of one's epistemological and ontological anchor go, but to be willing in the name of the human to allow the human to become something other than what it is traditionally assumed to be? This means that we must learn to live and to embrace the destruction and re-articulation of the human in the name of a more capacious and finally less violent world, not to know in advance what precise form our humanist does and will take, but to be open to its permutations, including the displacement of anthropocentrism itself in the name of nonviolence. Emmanuel Levinas taught us, I think wisely, that the question we pose to the other is simple and unanswerable. Who are you? The violent response is the one which does not ask and does not seek to know. It wants to shore up what it knows, to expunge what threatens it with not knowing, what forces it to reconsider the presuppositions of its world, its contingency, its malleability. The nonviolent response lives with its unknowingness about the other in the face of the other, since sustaining the bond that the question opens is finally more valuable than knowing in advance what holds us in common as if we already have all the resources we need to know about what defines the human and what its future life might be. The fact that we cannot predict or control what permutations of the human might arise does not mean that we must value all possible permutations of the human. It doesn't mean that we cannot struggle for the realization of certain values, democratic, nonviolent, international, anti-racist. The point is only that to struggle for those values is precisely to avow that one's own position is not sufficient to elaborate the spectrum of the human, that one must enter into a collective work in which one's own status as a subject must, for democratic reasons, become disoriented, exposed to what it does not know. The point is not to apply social norms to lived social instances, to order and define them, nor is it to find justificatory mechanisms for the grounding of social norms that are extra-social. There are times when both of these activities do and must take place. We level judgments against criminals for illegal acts. We subject them to a normalizing procedure. We consider our grounds for action in collective contexts. We try to find modes of deliberation and reflection about which we can agree. But, neither of, but none of these, neither of the above, is all that we do with norms. Through recourse to norms, the sphere of the humanly intelligible is circumscribed and this circumscri circumscription is consequential for any ethics and any conception of social transformation. We might say, but we must know the fundamentals of the human in order to act in such a way that we preserve and promote human life as we know it. But what if the very categories of the human have excluded those who should be operating within its terms, who do not accept the modes of reasoning and justifying validity claims that have been proffered by Western forms of rationalism? Have we ever yet known the human? And what might it take to approach that knowing? Should we be wary of knowing it too soon or of any final or definitive knowing? 
If we take the field of the human for granted, then we fail to think critically and ethically about the consequential ways that the human is being produced, reproduced, deproduced. This latter inquiry does not exhaust the field of ethics, but I cannot imagine a responsible ethics or theory of social transformation operating without it. Let me suggest here as a way of offering a closing discussion that the necessity of keeping our notion of the human open to a future articulation is essential to the project of international human rights discourse and politics. We see this time and again when the very notion of the human is presupposed. It's defined in advance and in terms that are distinctively Western, very often American, and therefore parochial. The paradox emerges that the human at issue in human rights is already known, already defined, yet it's supposed to be the ground for a set of rights and obligations that are international. How we move from the local to the international is a major question for international politics, but it takes a specific form for international lesbian, gay, bi, trans, and intersex struggles, as well as for feminism. And I would suggest to you that an anti-imperialist or minimally non-imperialist conception of international human rights must call into question what is meant by the human and learn from the various ways and means by which it is defined across cultural venues. This means that local conceptions of what is human or indeed of what the basic conditions and needs of human life are must be subjected to reinterpretation since there are historical and cultural circumstances in which the human is defined differently and its basic needs and hence basic entitlements are also <coughs> defined differently. Now I don't mean to be offering a reductively relativist argument. I think that a reductive relativism would say we can't speak of the human or of international human rights since there are only and always local and provisional understandings of these terms and that the generalizations themselves do violence to the specificity of the meanings in question. That's not my view. I'm not ready to rest there. Indeed, I think we're compelled to speak of the human and of the international and to find out in particular how human rights do and do not work, say, in favor of women or of what women are and what they are not. But to speak in this way, to call for social transformation, say, in the name of women, we must also be part of a critical democratic project one which understands that the category of the human has been used differentially and with exclusionary aims, that not all humans have been included within its terms, and that the category of women has been used differentially and with exclusionary aims and not fully incorporated into the human. <coughs> Both categories, women and human, are in process, underway, unfulfilled. This means, I think, that we must follow a double path in politics we have to use this language and use it to, to assert an entitlement to conditions of life in ways that are sensitive to the questions of sexuality and gender. And we must also subject our very categories to critical scrutiny, find out the limits of their inclusivity, the presuppositions they include, the ways in which they must be expanded to encompass the diversity of what it is to be human and gendered. When the UN conference at Beijing met several years ago and we heard their discourse on women's human rights, or when we hear from the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission, it strikes many people as a paradox. Women's human rights, lesbian and gay human rights. But think about what this coupling actually does. It performs the human as contingent. It argues that it has in the past the notion of the human and continues in the present to define a variable and restricted population which may or may not include lesbians and gays, may not include women. It says that such groups have their own set of human rights that what human comes to mean when we think about the humanness of women is perhaps different than what human has meant when it has functioned as presumptively male. It also says that these terms are defined variably in relation to one another. And we could certainly make a si similar argument about race. 
which populations have qualified as the human, which have not? What is the history of this category? Where are we in its history at this time? I would suggest that in this last process, we can only re-articulate or re-signify the basic categories of ontology, of being human, of being gendered, of being recognizably sexual to the extent that we submit ourselves to a process of cultural translation. And the point here is not to assimilate foreign or unfamiliar notions of gender or humanness into our own, as if it is simply a matter of assimilation or incorporation. It's also a process of yielding our most fundamental categories, that is, seeing how and why they yield to a rupture and a resignification when they encounter what is unknown or not yet known. It's crucial to recognize that the notion of the human will only be built over time in and by the process of cultural translation, where it is not a translation between two languages to a more which stay enclosed, distinct, <coughs> unified in relation to one another, but rather translation will compel each language to change in order to apprehend the other. And this apprehension at the limit of what is familiar, parochial, and already known will be the occasion for both an ethical and social transformation. It will constitute a loss, a disorientation, but also the renewal of the horizon of possibility. When we ask then what makes a life livable, we're asking about certain normative conditions that must be fulfilled for life to become life. And there are at least two senses of life, the one which refers to the minimum biological form of living and another which intervenes at the start, which establishes minimum conditions for a livable life with regard to human life. This does not imply that we can disregard the merely living in favor of the livable life, but that we must ask as, we ask, as we asked about gender violence, what humans require in order to maintain and reproduce the conditions of their own livability. What are our politics such that we are in whatever way is possible, both conceptualizing the possibility of the livable life and arranging for its institutional support. There will always be disagreement about what this means, and those who claim that a single political direction is necessitated by virtue of this commitment will be mistaken. But this is only because to live is to live a life politically, in relation to power, in relation to others, in the act of assuming responsibility for a collective future. To assume responsibility for a future, however, is not to know its direction fully in advance, since the future, especially the future with and for others, requires a certain openness and unknowingness. It also implies that a certain agonism and contestation will and must be in play. It must be in play for politics to become democratic. Democracy does not speak in unison. Its tunes are dissonant and necessarily so. It's not a predictable process. It must be undergone like a passion must be undergone. It may also be that life itself becomes foreclosed when the right way is decided in advance, when we impose what is right for everyone and without finding a way to enter into community and to, and to discover there the right in the midst of cultural translation. It may be that what is right and what is good consists in staying open to the tensions that beset the most fundamental categories we require, to know unknowingness at the core of what we know and what we need and to recognize the sign of life and its prospects in the contestations which are ours to undergo with one another. Thank you.